Rage Machine Books presents The Dark Worlds Podcast, examining the culture of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. David Gerald has been writing science fiction for the last 55 years, beginning with the original Star Trek television series in 1966 with his screenplay for the Trouble with Tribbles episode. His novels have included When Harley Was One and The Man Who Folded Himself. He has been nominated for numerous awards, and in 1995 his novel Let the Martian Child won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards. Recently, David Gerald spoke to G.W. Thomas and I from his home in California. We began by talking about science fiction influences, specifically Robert A. Heinlein. Robert Heinlein started a lot of us um, on the path. It was his juvenile novels, of which I think there were eight. See if I can remember them. Rocketship Galileo was the first. There was Space Cadet, uh, Time for the Stars. No, no, wait a minute. What was that? There was uh, Citizen of the Galaxy, uh, Half Space Suit Will Travel, Red Planet, uh, Tunnel in the Sky, I don't remember them all. Yeah. I read them all more than once. Mm. Well, they were the science fiction gateway drug for, <laughs> for a lot all of us. For all of us. All of us, yeah. And you've, you know, you tried to sort of pay that back with that, with your, uh, the, the Gilead trilogy. Yes, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, what was fun was reading the reviews that specifically compared it to Heinlein's work mm-hmm. and pointed out that I had gone places that Heinlein never did because... He had an editor named uh, Alice Dalglish, I think, mm. and uh, she had been very, very rigorous by the standards of the 50s. And finally, uh, she rejected Starship Troopers, which was intended as a juvenile. Mm-hmm. And so he was through. So he quit. He was very stubborn. Um, he even told John W. Campbell one time, if you ever reject a story, I'll never sell to you again. And Campbell did reject a story eventually. And a few years later, he said, how come I'm not seeing any more stories from you, Bob? And Heinlein said, because you rejected one. Remember what I told you? Well, at that point, Heinlein branched out to Saturday Evening Post and uh, Boys Life magazine and a whole bunch of other places. And uh, Collier's was publishing Ray Bradbury. I think they may have published Heinlein, too. And so uh, Heinlein discovered that he could do the adult novels as well. He had done Double Star. He had done Sixth Column, uh, which uh, Campbell had encouraged him to, had given him the outline. So uh, Robert discovered that his, all of the audience that had grown up with his juveniles was right there to buy his grown-up books, his adult books. So uh, that worked out very well for him. You know, when we got to junior high school and high school and we had our own allowances or our pocket money from our paper routes, I was like, oh, look, a new Heinlein. I'll just buy this instead of waiting for it to show up in the library. And uh, first there were the, you know, you could afford the 50 cents for the paperback. But then, you know, by the time you were an adult and the hardcover would go, oh, I'll buy this in hardcover. So Heinlein became one of our best selling authors. And yeah, everyone... I think started off with the juveniles and then, you know, eventually moved on into the, uh, his adult book, but your, your Dingilead trilogy was an homage or was it an intentional? Uh, uh it was, um, I wanted to read a new Heinlein juvenile and mm-hmm. he wasn't writing any. So, uh, <laughs> having, uh, discorporated. So I, uh, had to write it myself. And uh, I had been, oh, this is a fun story. I had been thinking about a story where we go up the, the beanstalk, uh, the, you know, the orbital elevator. And I was mm-hmm. thinking that would be a great story to tell. But I didn't have a plot. I didn't have a story. And then uh, I had adopted this wonderful little boy. He's 37 now. <laughs> uh, but this was 1995. He was 11. The adoption had just been finalized. And uh, we got a job. I got a job up in Canada, Mm. in Montreal. Mm. And I said, I'm not coming without my son. And I said, no problem. It was a show called Space Cases, Peter David and Bill Moomy. Okay, yeah. And um, and actually, it was a pretty good show. I got to give Peter and Bill a lot of credit. They worked hard. They made their scripts were good. They would really I wish the show had gone on a little longer because there were a lot of good people working on it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we um, arrived at midnight in uh, Montreal Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I, you know, told the customs officer, I said, look, I have a job here. Here's my son. Here's our passports. Here's our this. Here's our paperwork. And immediately he hustled me off to a little office with uh, a senior official who started quizzing Sean. And uh, I had told Sean early on in the adoption, people are going to ask you a lot of questions. You are not obligated to tell people your story. So we invented a little cover story that would let people know he's not answering those questions. And so when this customs official, this border official starts asking these questions of Sean, Sean says, um, you know, where's your mom? And Sean says, oh, uh, she was kidnapped by space aliens. And I think she's living with Elvis now. Now, I had always told Sean, I will back you up. So the guy looks at me and I say, oh, yeah, saw it right up. And she was gone. Sean is laughing like crazy. He's having a great time. And the guy starts quizzing real intense questions. I suddenly said to him, look, he's my adopted son. His mother's parental rights were terminated. And I really resent having to explain this because he does not need to have his 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 family question. And the guy says, well, you know, uh, we have had some adoption, uh, some uh, child custody kidnappings, and it's a program I created. And I said, yeah, that's all very well, but we're not that. And by the way, I'm working for space cases and you should have all that information there because they said they had it, had filed it with you. And he goes, oh, yeah, uh, you're working on space cases. Peter David left this here. Would you give it to him? <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Anyway, oh. after that, I carried the adoption decree with me. I didn't think I needed it. He was my son, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and and uh, I, I was I was really, you know, uh, annoyed and upset by that <laughs> because of the possibility I had worked so hard, you know, for three years mm-hmm. to have this guy questioning the parentage with the risk <laughs> that the kid might be taken away, even though it's legally mine now. Yeah, I uh, you, you made stuck it. With, yeah. You made it into the country and <laughs> yeah, I, I got to Canada. So it stuck with me. And I thought, yeah, that's the story. The uh, father is taking uh, the kids up the beanstalk. It's a child custody kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And so all of the pieces fell in place then. And I had had a couple bad experiences with a lawyer who had wanted a piece of something he wasn't entitled to anymore. And uh, and I had told my lawyer, just run up his billables until he gives up and goes away, which is exactly what we did. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so that was those were the pieces of the story. And I got myself into a Heinlein mood by putting myself into Charles Chigger's uh, head mm-hmm. and said, now, you know, Heinlein always had his characters fascinated by going to space, but not every kid is interested in that. And I thought, you know what Chigger loves? He loves his music and he wants to be left alone. And I thought, get that, you know, so I gave him an older brother who's weird and a younger brother who's stinky. And uh, that's his relationship with them. And so I know I succeeded because when the reviews, people started reviewing the series on, uh, uh, Amazon, one of the reviewers, I couldn't finish this. It, the characters, it was so realistic. The characters made my skin crawl. <laughs> it was like, oh, good. <laughs> and then and then we got the other kind of reviews. We got people saying, oh, well, you know, uh, David Gerald must have been a middle child. No, I wasn't. David mm-hmm. Gerald's fam- parents must have had a bitter divorce. No, they didn't. <laughs> had a very happy family. David Gerald did, you know, because the characters were so realistic, people assumed I was writing from my own life. Well, I was extrapolating from situations I was well aware of, but there's very little of, I mean, the only part of me that you can really say is Chigger is my love of music because Chigger keeps referring to music that the reader can go and find the CDs or find it on streaming and listen to the music, which I thought was a uh, very, very critical uh, thing because I felt there's not enough awareness of two things in science fiction. A lot of science fiction novels, the hero is in a vacuum. He has no girlfriend, no boyfriend, no family, no children, no cousins, no siblings. And he's just off having the adventure. And uh, so, you know, this was for me, it's like 
we need to have more families involved in science fiction. Then the other thing was we need to be more aware of music. It's not just about the spaceships. Uh, there are other things that humans do. I actually, there's a switch. As you think the father is a is a, a sympathetic character, it turns out the mother ends up in the trilogy a much more sympathetic character. Anyway, I was very pl pleased with the trilogy. And then uh, there's a, a sort of a sequel in Hella, which is just out, it's on Amazon, which Chigger and Jimmy and a couple other characters show up, but, but this one is told from the point of Kyle, who is a somewhere on the spectrum, but he has an implant to help him be uh, work better with uh, neurotypical human beings. I, yeah. I was going to mention that, Hella. Uh, you've you've gotten a lot of heat recently from people who, because your character is neurodivergent, and you know you. So you've had a lot of people sort of say, "Well, that's not the way it really is." But for you, I mean, this is as you said, you know, with people sort of saying. Obviously, you must have had your parents had have gone through the divorce in order to create these realistic characters. You've created a character that that people are reacting to very strongly. And it, I haven't I haven't read Hella yet, but I mean I have read you know a lot of your comments on Facebook about people. Well, and what they're uh, saying about it. We didn't have all that terminology when I was a kid, but uh, I could have been diagnosed as mildly somewhere on the spectrum Aspergers. I could have been um, diagnosed that, and so and then. When I was preparing to adopt Sean, I had stacks and stacks of books and seminars and workshops and tapes. I did enough research on adoption and children's issues because I didn't want to adopt a baby. I wanted a kid who was old, potty trained at least. Mm. Uh, I said old enough to tall enough to dust. And so I did a lot of research on the issues uh, that you would be, you know, and who's who are the kids in the system were the ones who were given up on or rejected or abused or funny looking or or terminal or or uh sick with something or or you know and it's like kids who've been that you know it's like everybody wants the cute little baby and so a lot of the older kids in the system are kind of um hard to place so i was doing all that research and then i have a nephew who is seriously uh very far out on the autism spectrum so i did my research there but i also watched how he behaved uh, and then when I was in my 20s, I was a camp counselor for one year at the Braille Institute with their children, and we had some autistic kids there. So I've had more experience with people who are neurodivergent than most people are aware of. So a lot of Kyle is my own personal experience and a lot of what I said about uh, stuff that was going on in his life comes from my experience of you know, meeting other people and their families and doing my research. So some of it is actually personal. And I actually got into Kyle's head and I said, well, what did I feel when I was a kid? When I was a kid, I felt nobody understood me. I was fascinated by science and this and that and the other thing. And nobody else understood my enthusiasms. And I wrote from that point of view. What I do think has happened with the little bit of heat I've taken is people who are somewhere on the spectrum are, are saying, but he's not writing about me. How dare he write about people on the spectrum? And, but the fact is, is this, is that neurodivergent, and I, I hate the idea that there's a normal and then there's a divergent because we're all somewhere. Well, we're all but, somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's what they call it a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, people say, well, how can he be writing about me? I don't recognize me in what he's writing. Well, I'm not writing about you. I'm writing about Kyle. I'm <laughs> writing it from my perspective. And I've seen the same thing true, you know, with, uh, uh, I was reading a book about uh, gay characters and I said, I don't recognize these people. <laughs> and, and I had to think, well, yes, but there are people like this. So the author is telling me about how people like this operate. And the same thing with other areas of my life where I say, I don't recognize myself in that person, but I have to recognize that this author sees people that way. One of the things that we've no writers have noticed, and it's not just recent, is readers, not all readers, but some readers can be very selfish and very entitled mm -hmm. as if they assume the author is writing for themselves and nobody else. And yeah, that's the experience. You pick up a book and you're reading and it feels like you're reading a letter from another human being. Mm -hmm. And if it's very vivid, it sticks with you. You know, we remember 
Johnny Rico from Starship Troopers and Valentine Michael Smith from Stranger in a Strange Land and Manny from Moon is a Harsh Mistress. We remember Gully Foyle from Stars My Destination and Lige Bailey from uh, The Naked Sun. We remember these characters because the author made them vivid. And the reason the author made them vivid, I believe, is the author got inside the character and wrote from, this is what it feels like to be this character. So if somebody says, well, he's not, this isn't the, my experience, you're right. It's not your experience, it's mine. It's my character's experience. I don't, I don't know what I want to, don't want to get into uh, reader entitlement, although I know, I know that's a big, uh, a big thing, you know, particularly with, you know, you're not writing to my timetable. <laughs> uh, when's the next book coming out? But you said something relatively recently, which, which I found fascinating and that, and I'm not sure when you said it, but it was something about something along the lines of you're only just learning how to write. Yeah. Um... And, and that, that, that kind of blew me away because I mean, after the man who folded himself and, and, and when Harley was one and, 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 you know, the Martian child, and now you say you're, you're only just learning how to write. Well, you know, I could put sentences together. I, I was very good at that in, in school. I, you know, I learned my grammar. I learned my spelling. I learned most of my punctuation. So I could put sentences together. So I could put together a passable manuscript. And I could, after Erwin uh, R. Blacker's wonderful screenwriting class where we focused on structure, I could put a story together. The hero has a problem. The hero figures out what the problem is. The, figure, the hero finds out all the things that don't work to solve the problem. The hero recognizes his own participation in the problem. The hero has this transformation where he recognizes or she recognizes what, what they need to become and then solve the problem. That's story structure. And I mean, we get more detailed than that, but basically basically, story, stru story structure is about how do you solve a problem? And I could do that, but I, I uh, aspire to do better. You know, when you look at, at incredible works of art and you say, how did the, how did the writer do that? And, and uh, it's, it's kind of like, as a, I learned how to ride a bicycle, right? Mm -hmm. And the first few weeks or months of riding the bicycle, I don't want to fall over. But as you gain skill, you get a little more comfortable. And by the time, after a couple of years of riding the bicycle, I was riding no hands. I'd, you know, ride along like this, pumping away, keeping my balance. And I, you know, and that was pretty cool. And then I turn on, the, you know, the TV and I'd see a guy on a unicycle and I realize, oh, now that's mastery, <laughs> right? Right. You know, I'd see the guy doing the tricks with the bicycle on the tightrope or whatever. That's mastery. So there's a thing that happens where you can plug into your passion so intensely that uh, you've built up your 10,000 hours of muscle memory in that skill of getting the sentences down on paper, of knowing don't use the same word in a, to more than once um, in a paragraph or in, in, in a nearby paragraph you know, use different words, evoke all five senses, find the rhythm of the language, write with a, a metric rhythm, all of these things. And there's a point at which they become a natural skill that's transparent to what you're doing. And one day you go, it, all that stuff is, it's in the background. It's like balancing on the bicycle. And then you can evoke your passion without having to think about what you're doing. And that happened particularly in a thing called 13 o'clock where um, I had been playing around with the, just the language. And I'd written a couple opening paragraphs just to see what was, you know, what this voice was like. And you put on the, you know, and this is where the acting uh, I, I did. I studied acting in college until I realized I don't want to be an actor. It's hard work and you have to do the same thing every night on stage and and if it's a movie you're sitting around and waiting and then you have to create it on the spur of the moment but the skill of putting myself inside my characters is what i got from my acting background i was looking at these various paragraphs where i'd been trying on this voice this character's name chase and i put on all of these voices and suddenly looked and said oh look this fits with this fits with this and i started just sitting down and letting it flow just i don't know what chase is telling me tell me talk to me chase let me become chase let me find out what's happening you know and by the time i was through with this i had a novel 13 14 15 o'clock 
And again, I have to tell people, these are not, this is not my life, mm. but a lot of it, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of it is based on people I've met, experiences I've uh, had here and there, or been a party to, or people who've told me stories or just things that were happening in that particular culture at the time that I became aware of. So it's, it's very vivid, but uh, there is nothing in the uh, stories that is directly taken from my life. There is one tiny thing that is a rewrite of something that I wish had happened in my life. Other than that, uh, other than that, um, it's, it was all created from, uh, uh, it was a synthesis of everything that I've experienced vicariously. And so do you find that, is it like, um, you know, you finally, finally found a way to sort of get David Gerald out of the way and just sort of connect direct more directly with, with the page? Is that? Yeah. Uh, I, there were, I've written some stories that were, uh, crappy where I absolutely had absolutely no story to tell. And I just uh, put words on the page. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to identify any of them. There's one that I really, well, I'll, I'll tell you one. There's a, uh, we did a Beatles anthology. I don't even remember the name. And I couldn't. Across, and, across the universe, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote a story where it occurred to me that the Beatles were the Fantastic Four. <laughs> and, you know, Ringo was Thingo. And uh, John, of course, was the Human Torch. <laughs> and George was Invisible. And uh, and Paul, of course, was Plastic Man, but I could not find a story. And I ended up doing it as a uh, Rolling Stone interview. And uh, as a Rolling Stone interview, they can talk about their previous experiences. And of course, you, you, you know, you drop in all the different lyrics and, you know, they as the fab fantastic four they fought mean mr mustard and the blue meanies and blah 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 but there's no story there it was just me spewing all the beatles references and it's a very shallow piece and and i was very embarrassed by it because i really you know i wanted the fantastic four to actually have a fantastic four adventure but i couldn't think of anything and so i just retreated to doing it as a rolling stone interview It's clever enough but it's not great literature as compared to uh, George R. R. Martin did a put together an anthology of, of called Wild Cards, which mm-hmm. is new superheroes. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to do the bag lady. And and I could never come up with a story. And this was like 20 years. It's lurking in my head. The bag lady and coming <laughs> back from a convention in Canada or Montana or somewhere as on the plane. Suddenly something occurred to me and I opened my computer and I started typing 1500 words. I looked at it and I said, I, I thought I was just writing an outline that I'd flesh out later. I, I just looked at this. This is complete. This is done. <laughs> and um, I think it's it published in amazing. I, I don't remember where, where we published it, but um, and I expected it would have much more impact, but it didn't, <laughs> but I'm very proud of it. I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a, a brilliant story. So just like it's 1500 words. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's compact. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Because one of the things that I, and, and I'm just thinking with the Degiliad, for instance, I mean, when you mentioned about going up the beanstalk, that was something that I found very, I mean, just incredible visceral description of what it would be like to go up one of those. Uh, that's um, one of the things that just hooked me was how in all the details, you know, you, you immerse, immersed me in the, in that whole sort of that world, that, that, that situation, uh, which, you know, of course doesn't exist. And that's, I guess, you know, with, especially with science fiction, there's a, there's a, a, a balance between that kind of immersive experience and actually telling a story that has some, some kind of worth. It's the, the, the dichotomy, I guess, between the whiz bang, you know, sense of wonder and actually telling a story that, that, you know, that pulls you through it. Yeah. Uh, Ben Bova, uh, uh read, um, the manuscript early on, he said it was the best description of uh, going up the uh, beanstalk that he had ever read. He thought mm-hmm. it was br- brilliantly put together. And, you know, that was high praise from Ben Bova. And uh, I was very, very pleased with that. The interesting thing is that I cheated. When I did the math on it, what happens is 
uh, I, I wanted them to get up to geosynchronous in one day, which means they have to go about a thousand miles an hour up. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of speed, you can't do it in the atmosphere very easily. Of course, once you get above, you know, 100 miles up, you can probably do that. But I cheated the math usually uh, because what I have read is it can take a week to get up to geosynchronous. But I didn't want to lock them in, a, in the elevator for a week yeah. or even three days. Mm -hmm. So I, I cheated, you know, it's like, okay, there's, you know, this is, it's a linear accelerator of, you know, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of that throughout your other fiction. I mean, the, the, the tour novels, for instance, uh, have a lot of those, especially that uh, it was a sequence, you know, several uh, sequences in the airships and things like that, just actually putting you there. And also in uh, the Star Wolf novels, uh, you know, for me, that was, you know, that, that sort of the very big geek kind of thing was, you know, wow, this is like, it makes it make you feel well, like what it's like to be on, on, you know, on a, this starship, this, you know, with the, the bottle within the bottle and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, all of that whiz bang doesn't, I mean, it's, it's great, but, you know, you do need to have that human sort of through line of story. And that's, you know, like for instance, with Corey in the, uh, in the, the star wolf, you know, his, his emotional journey and, 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 of course, the tour novels. And is that something you find you're able to balance better? Or? I think I have an engineering streak in me. It's like, I want to know how it's done. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've spent time back in the early days of the what we called then the computer revolution. I spent a lot of time learning how to write first in basic, which was mm -hmm. the only pr uh, language available on the North Star, and then later Turbo Pascal. And which I still, I cannot understand why Pascal has not survived uh, except for a niche group because it's a lot easier than almost any other language I've encountered. It, the, you know, I, it evolved into something called Embarcadero, Rad Studio, Delphi, whatever, and which is a very powerful tool, but you know, they want $3,000 for it or some ungodly sum. So it's not a popular hobbyist language anymore. And which bothers the hell out of me because the popular hobbyist thing has disappeared from the computer world to the extent it used to be. Uh, and then, so that was one thing. And then the engineering, I, 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 when I was a teen, I did a lot of stop motion animation on a, a home camera. Of course, there was the acting. And then uh, I got involved with the human potential movement. And over the years, staying involved, various trainers, I became friends with various trainers. I actually ended up getting licensed to lead some of the advanced courses because I had, you know, been so active for a while. So obviously I've had this career that bounces, is very peripatetic. It bounces, and then it all comes back to the writing, which is the central love. Oh, I've also directed some fan films and I've written and directed stage plays too. So uh, what happens is all of that comes back to the writing is that something that you don't think is source material one day shows up 15 years later. Oh my gosh, that's this. So I have this streak of how are things, of taking things apart, finding out how they work and putting them back together a little bit better. The result is that you, you know, what are the mechanics of this kind of thing? So, uh, for instance, the airship in uh, A Season for Slaughter is filled with helium. But since then, I've realized I could do something really clever, is that we could do uh, plastic balls of vacuum that would be sturdy enough. You fill them with aerogel so they don't collapse, so they have structure, but they're still lighter than helium. And the, if the airship is filled with those, it's immune to the uh, sting fly. So, uh, so I think, okay, great. Now what if I do that? It's like, I can do it in another story, but you know, if I do that, how else do I bring the airship down? But yeah, it's, it's, I've always thought about what, what technology do we have and what happens when you put it together in different ways. And I got, I got, uh, acknowledged recently for, um, I had written a, uh, have you ever realized how weird this is we are in a future where we are having video phone calls on our computers and we're taking it for granted mm -hmm. whereas two years ago nobody did video calls except this is <laughs> oh look we can do a video call it's like you know it's like on holidays mm -hmm. uh uh the family would you know my cousin matt who's in um my nephew matt who's in florida 
uh, would my sister would hold up her iPhone or whatever, and we would pass it around and everybody would talk to Matt on a video call. So it was a <laughs> holiday thing, right? Yeah. Now we're doing it every damn day. Because I, I know the, we, the, we the pandemic back in in like I think 1999, I was asked to write a little article for a little advertising magazine. I wrote about how the phone of the future would have a, it would have a GPS and it would play your music and it would do this and it would do that. And, uh, and you would sacrifice your privacy. So I call, while I called it a personal information telecommunications agent, that PETA, P-I-T-A, it also PETA, stands yeah. for pain in the ass <laughs> because you lose your privacy. Mm-hmm. Well, and this was like, I don't know, 10 paragraphs at most. Mm-hmm. Actually, I just, I just read that the other day. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it, it uh, just popped up as a thing. Sci-fi writer predicted the iPhone. You know, <laughs> like, right. Well, you know, eight years later, the iPhone appeared and it was almost, it was almost everything I had predicted. Yeah, you, you pretty much And I missed a couple it, yeah. points. Yeah. I, it pretty, I, if I'd have thought about it a little more, there were a couple other things I probably would have put in it, but I didn't think about it. It was just like, mm-hmm. you know what it was? I had the phone here. I had a calculator there. I had a camera over here that was the same size as the phone. I had I realized one day somebody's going to push all this shit into one box. <laughs> and I was like, and sure enough, you know, when I think about it, the amount of power I've got in in this machine is more power than the allies had available to them in all of World War Two. <laughs> you know, give me a keyboard and I will decode the Enigma <laughs> code. Yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. They had they had less technology than that to put man on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is more this is more power than I've had on my desk for 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. that we're let's see, the computer revolution really started around 1977 mm-hmm. with the MSI and the Apple uh, Apple two. So that would be what that would be. Uh, 23 and 21 is 44 years. We have personal computers for 44 years now. Most of the people that we've interviewed so far, they mostly write pulpish stuff. And they've identified uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard as being the two writers most often who inspired them when they were younger. And I was just wondering if David Gerald even even read them. I know Einlein's real big with you, but was there anyone before Einlein? Um, Jules Verne, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and uh, in particular, and Mysterious Island. But 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think, is one of the greatest science fiction novels ever written. And the movie version of it li- does great justice to it. Is that that's the Disney one with yeah, J- the Disney James one? Mason? No. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, it's never been equaled. I, but I was also reading uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, my dad had a, a a library of classic books, one of those cheap libraries where you buy a book every week for 25 cents at the, you know, or whatever. It was a real cheap, you know, and, and if you read one of the books, uh, it was fairly obvious that the, because the binding would get worn real fast. So you'd always tell which books I had read. And here's the Three Musketeers and Swiss Family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Tales of Mystery of Imagination. That one had a really worn binding. And I went through those. So, uh, but Edgar Rice Burroughs, I had no interest in Tarzan as a kid. Just running half naked around the jungle did not strike me as really a fun thing to do. <laughs> and, and not Conan either. I mean, I had read a little bit of uh, uh, Robert E. Howard and the Conan and the various things because they were peripheral to the science fiction universe. But I would say I was more influenced by Heinlein, Asimov, Sturgeon, Clark, Fred Pohl, Zena Henderson, and then, of course, Daniel Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, and uh, uh, the Three Musketeers, and then Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. I was actually getting into a lot of what we consider the classics um, simply because they were there on the shelf. And uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, of course. So I actually had a bit of a literary background coming to science fiction. And this is what's, this is what's interesting, because I was not reading only science fiction. So when I wrote my first novel, When Harley Was One, one of the things I wanted to do was get away from the science fiction pulp history. A lot of science fiction, you know, the pulp magazines, science fiction grew out of those, these oversized with the ragged edges and which you would buy for a dime later on a quarter when, you know, and you would get this pulp adventure. And in those days, the writers were getting a penny a word. 
by the 60s, three cents a word was considered top of the market. Amazing. Uh, Ted White asked me one day, why don't you submit to Amazing? I said, what are you paying? He said, a penny a word. I said, I get three cents a word from Galaxy. <laughs> so I was like, thank you, no. Uh, now the magazines are paying eight cents a word, which is, you know. Which has not kept up with inflation. For... <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think the magazines should be paying like, you know, 20 cents a word and I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy. Yeah. But when I came to Harley was one, I was like, I want this to have a literary quality. I want it to read like a mainstream book. And I wrote it like a mainstream. And so there's the first clinically accurate sex scene in science fiction in when Harley was one. And, and which was kind of groundbreaking because nobody had written a sex scene as they'd always implied that maybe the, you know, the hero and the heroine would get it on, you know, I don't know. But here, you know, I had him jump into the shower and, you know, and, and it's, you know, and, and Auberson is, is, you know, he's, he's a nerd. Mm -hmm. So wrapped up in, in this work he's doing that falling in love is a break in his reality. He's 33 years old. And I know people who've gotten that old without ever losing their virginities. <laughs> well, no, he lost his virginity, but this was, yeah. you know, this was something else. And so the book, got a Hugo nomination and, and Betty Ballantyne uh, thought it would win the Hugo. And then Isaac Asimov did wrote the gods themselves, which is a fabulous construction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I loved Isaac, but he, I saw him campaigning in front of the audience, please vote for my novel for the Hugo. Mm -hmm. And I was very embarrassed for him because it's like, come on, man, begging for, well, he desperately wanted to prove he was still a master in the field. Uh -huh. And, you know, I learned a lesson there because he wasn't the only one who was campaigning for awards mm -hmm. as if somehow the award was important. And I'd had a bad experience with awards in junior high school. And so I had a kind of a jaundiced view anyway. So I came away from that and a couple other experiences. I was nominated for the Hugo like, I don't know, six times and came in second three or four times. It's like, oh, the hell with it. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I'm tired of going to these banquets, right? So I stopped worrying about the awards. And I said, I, it's more important to do a story that is award worthy than to win the award. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the man who folded himself is still in print 40 years later. The Martian Child, which I wrote merely to describe the experience I had falling in love with my son, but it's also kind of a breakthrough because nobody had ever done a story quite like that in science fiction. We got incredible fan letters on that. Like um, it was rejected six times. Christine Catherine Rush picked it up for FNSF. And we and all of a sudden we were getting these most amazing fan letters from the readers. And I said, I don't know how I accomplished it. All I did was sit down and, and that may have been one of the first few times where the passion overwhelmed the technique. <laughs> because after I'd won the Hugo and Nebula Ford, I thought, you know, I know how to fix this story. I know how to make it better. I can't <laughs> like, you know, it's already gone <laughs> yeah. because it's just this passionate flow of emotion. Uh -huh. There, There is a copy of the Martian child at my local uh, library and you'll be very happy to hear it's in the literary section, not in the mm. science fiction section. Oh, Where I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Now you wrote a screenplay and I, I know you did because you read some sections of it at a convention that I was at, particularly, I remember you reading the scene where you're, taking Sean to meet your mother and talking about the pickled mongoose. And uh, I was rolling on the, on the floor laughing. It was hilarious. Uh, but it's, not, it, that was, I will tell you, uh, except for one detail, that was exactly the way it really happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> the one detail is my mother didn't have that sense of, she didn't say, uh, no, the store is all out of mongoose. I gave her that <laughs> line. Of that. She just said, no, I'm not making mongoose. I'm making chicken. Like, oh, come on. Don't you know how to play the gag? Yeah. Come on. You missed the punchline, mom. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, you know what? I haven't, I have not seen the movie. Did, did, they didn't use any of your screenplay for that. I uh, um, was very unhappy with the movie because mm -hmm. the people who wrote that script did not, they, they didn't know adoption. They didn't, they left out the fact that the dad is gay. That's mm -hmm. why it's a single parent adoption. They, mm -hmm. And, and what they wrote was, you know, I wanted to do something as good as Kramer versus Kramer, and they did Elf. What they wrote about adoption was 180 degrees wrong. Uh, you do a lot of research. And, you know, if you're a writer, you do research. And I did two years of research before I met Sean. 
and the, I was still doing my research because I, I wanted to stay a half step ahead of the little monster. They have their guy suddenly being dropped into this situation and he's not, they don't show him doing any research. Uh, his house is very pretty, but most writers have a house wherever it's wall-to-wall -wall books because great writers are great readers first. And, uh, and then all of the things he does as a parent are selfish and not about the raising the kid. And what I know about parenting, and I'm seeing it in my son now with his son, is that you put the well-being of your child ahead of everything else in your life. And this guy is so wrapped up in his own grief, in his own blah, blah, in his own, this is what you have to do. And this, you know, and he's giving the kid orders. And the, and the real way to raise a kid is you listen to what the kid wants and needs and you address those wants and needs. So the idea that this kid is going to flourish with this guy, nah. So I was very unhappy that the movie presented a very weird picture and, of adoption. And uh, I still have my script and I have a couple producers who say we should do this of course finding the money to do it and then it's a question well gee should we call it the martian child do we have to go buy rights why don't you just call it the true story of dennis and david um actually he's, he's changed his name to sean when the adoption was finalized he changed mm -hmm. his name to sean which was yeah. uh i said to him you know i said you can change your name because he was not happy with any name that reminded him of his past. Mm -hmm. He said, you can change your name when we get finalized. What name would you like? He said, Sean. I said, okay. And I would ask him every couple weeks, so what name do you want to be? Sean. Because I wanted him to be certain that, because he was going to be stuck with it for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was, later on, he said, could I have my name be Butthead? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> So his his middle name was David. He was Dennis David. And uh, I said, we're not changing your middle name. So that way you and I can have the same name. He said, all right. So uh, he was he was OK with that. So, and, and so you've raised the Martian child and now the, the Martian's child is is there in your home. You're you're a grandparent with, with the yeah. Laden. that's that's I, yeah. the most amazing thing. Uh, it is kind of a, a strange adventure, uh, but Sean and I have had this conversation that now he says, you're going to get to experience the part you missed because you got me when I was eight years old. You never got to raise me as a baby. Mm -hmm. I said, I wish I had because I, then I could have, you know, you would have been able to skip some of the bad things that happened. But then the other side of that is Sean is completing his own childhood because he's blocked out a lot of his memories from before he lived with me. So now he spends, oh my God, he is the best dad. He, is, he spends so much time with his baby, with his little boy, eight months uh -huh. old now. Yeah. And dinner time, Sean feeds, Sean feeds Aiden dinner. And the two mm -hmm. of them are having so much fun. And you know, the first few days, it's like, what are you trying to do? Stick that thing in my mouth? Yeah. And now, now Sean holds up the spoon and waves it around and Aiden goes, ah, as <laughs> like, ah, mm, no. so it's fun to, I mean, he's got it. He's understands about mm -hmm. eating now. I, I just think that uh, this is uh, uh, watching Sean become a dad. He's actually completing what was missing in his own childhood. And I think it's one of the healthiest and most beautiful things I've seen. I have never seen this young man so happy yeah. uh, in, in his life. And so I'm just, it's just a great adventure around here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I have some advice for Sean, a cautionary tale. Uh, don't introduce chocolate pudding too early. <laughs> you'll never get him to eat anything else <laughs> uh, we, we're not sure but Aiden um, uh, when Elise uh, eats chocolate Aiden breaks out a little bit so, oh, okay. so we're not sure yet if he has a, uh, an allergy or, or a sensitivity so we're going to be real careful with the chocolate for a while yeah <laughs> that's the only advice I have <laughs> Uh, it's very good advice. Uh, we already had the conversation about spaghetti and uh, Sean does not, I mean, because we're doing some remodeling and Sean does not want the uh, spaghetti on the wall. So uh... <laughs> actually to, to get back to writing, I, I just want to get your thoughts about the, uh, the way that the writing or the, the publishing industry has, has changed 
over the years. I mean, you know, the uh, disappearance of the mid list, uh, that kind of thing. What's been your, I mean, your, your response to it has been to basically take control of your back catalog and, and put it on your website. What's some of your thoughts about the way that the publishing, publishing industry has gone in the, in recent years? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Back in the fifties uh, and the sixties, your mid list was your retirement plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, if you were like with Ballantyne Del Rey every so often, like Arthur C. Clarke, every so often they'd take six of his titles, put them in matching covers and, and they'd end up in a row across the top of the, the, the book, the bookshelf in the bookstore. Uh-huh. And you'd walk in and you say, oh, my gosh, look, six Arthur C. Clarke books, all with matching covers. And they're only $1.25 <laughs> each. And you look in your wallet and say, oh, yeah, let's see. I have eight dollars. Right. I hope I did the math right. I have eight dollars and you walk out with these six Arthur C. Clarke, you know, and they do it with the hind lines, you know, with the similar covers and you'd end up buying these sets. And these are wonderful. And your mid list would, you know, now let's say uh, uh, in those days, uh, uh, Valentine would buy your book, give you an advance of three thousand dollars. And if it was a bestseller, you would earn out your that advance and you get some royalties. But if you had the mid-list, every so often, they'd go back to press for another 10,000 or 20,000 copies, and you'd get a royalty check. And uh, this worked very well for a lot of writers because you couldn't afford to, you know, you'd have to write two novels a year to, you know, pay your bills, and you'd still have to sell some short stories to pay your bills. And you'd say, I mean, it would, you would have to be writing at least five days a week. And then, but if you were getting, you know, uh, a couple thousand here and there, you know, April and October, you know, or February and, and whatever, August, whatever the royalty position was, those would tide you over. And and this went on even until the 90s. I was getting, so I ha- had a bunch of books with Bantam and I was getting some very nice royalty checks twice a year. And that was making it possible for me to uh, pay bills when I had Sean in the house. He was a very expensive kid to raise. Mm -hmm. But two things happened. One was that the law on inventory changed, where now if you have inventory at the warehouse, you pay a tax on your inventory. Mm -hmm. I think this is wrong. Well, what happened is publishers would no longer have all their books in in the warehouse, because they couldn't afford they couldn't afford to pay the tax mm-hmm. so now instead they would instead of printing up you know 50,000 copies selling 30,000 having 20,000 more that they would continue to push out over time you know because the bookstores would reorder now there's well we know we'll sell 30,000 so we'll only print 30,000 and then they'd go back to press only if they had to but they wouldn't it's like well we got our 30,000 out of this so we're not going to print anymore so right there, your, your backlist disappears. But then the other thing was the personal computer, the business computer. And they'd print out the list and say, oh, look, we sold uh, 50,000 copies of Purple Pirates of the Zorgan Empire. So uh, here comes Purple Pirates 2. We, let's only print 45,000 copies so we don't have the, the 5,000 copies in the and then they look at the, oh, Purple Pirates, we, we only sold 45,000 copies. Uh, we'll only sell 40,000 copies now. You know, you'd uh-huh. get 5,000 copies returned. So each time- That was a, look diminish, the, a diminishing return built into the system. Yeah, is because they'd look at the computer printout and they'd say, uh, we got 5,000 returns, we want, so we won't print as many. And so the first runs disappeared where previously you would print 50,000 copies of a paperback. Now you're down to, you know, 25,000 copies because you, oh my God. And then of course the bookstores disappeared. Part of it is the pandemic, but the, but large part of it was Amazon and crown and the other big, you know, crown is gone too. Yeah. I mean, this was, Borders this was certainly gone. going, going on before the pandemic hit. But yeah. The, Borders the, is gone. Yeah. Barnes and Noble has been closing stores. And, and so now you have Amazon and then you had the ebook came along and, and Amazon has the Kindle readership program, which has been abused. People will publish a book and then chunk on large amounts of text onto it because they will get more from the readership program. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm actually going to go back to my Amazon things and add preview chapters of all my other books available on Amazon. That way, if you read all the preview chapters, I'll get more from the Kindle Unlimited program. So see, when Amazon started, I was making 
a few hundred bucks every month from the short stories and stuff I'd posted. Now I'm making maybe one tenth of that because the the Amazon Kindle Unlimited and the and the other and 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 not there's the competition from all of the and I don't mean to and I'm not dissing the competition. God bless them. I love them. I've read some great stuff. But back in the 50s, we had 100 people writing science fiction. Now we have 10,000 or more globally. I don't know how many people are writing science fiction. I know the uh, membership numbers of the SFWA are a fraction of what they could be because a lot of people have decided, a lot of people have decided, oh, I don't need to be a member of the SFWA. Mm. I don't need to get vaccinated either. <laughs> but the, you know, I, I, I was on a panel on, on Worldcon and uh, uh, the person moderating the panel went on at length about her bad experience with a crappy little publisher she didn't pass the microphone. She thought it was her own panel. And by the time I got the microphone, all I could say is if you had joined CEFWA, the Writer Beware program and the Grief Committee would have helped you avoid all of this crap. That's, that's the advantage of SFWA is you certainly you have resources that you don't have as an individual. But anyway, we now have thousands and thousands of people writing science fiction. There are a lot of publishers, small publishers who are publishing, but there's also a lot of people are self-publishing. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to establish a credential in the field unless you appeal to a specific voting block or click or somehow you plug into a particular social movement. So it, the, the whole environment has shifted. Uh, I'm going to try an experiment in the, in sometime in April. And I have put together two book covers. One is called Light Side and the other is called Dark Side. And so the light side will be all my uplifting positive stories and the dark side will be my troubling stories, uh, disturbing stories. And instead of putting them on Amazon right away, I'm gonna do a GoFundMe and anybody who contributes to the GoFundMe, there'll probably be a basic level like $7, can, will get the uh, link to download these two eBooks. Maybe I'll make it $15 or I don't know. I haven't decided on a price level yet, but, the idea there is if I get 100 people downloading at, say, $7, I made $700 off these two ebooks in a few days. And that might be another way of marketing ebooks is to do them like Indiegogo or Kickstarter or, or GoFundMe. Uh, and also that makes them kind of special for the reader because it becomes a limited edition. But uh, now I, well, the other thing I was doing which I haven't been able to do for a year and a half, is we would print up special editions of books, uh, uh, Glenn Howman at Comic Mix. And we'd print up limited editions. We printed up Entanglements and Terrors, A Promise of Stars, Jacob, 13, 14, 15 o'clock, Little Horrors. And I would take a box of 50 of them to a convention and uh, I'd put them, you know, and I'd have like, you know, a dozen books on the table. Mm -hmm. And uh, with some very attractive covers, because I had I had de developed some very nice covers. See, I was an art major in college too, so I know a little I know a little <laughs> bit of what not to do. Uh -huh. So I would have a table at a convention, and uh, if I was a guest of honor, I'd say, "Well, I'm going to sit at the dealer's table, except when I'm making a speech. That way, everybody will know where to find me for autographs, and they'd end up buying one or two or three books." And I would make, uh, you know. If I was going to four or five or six conventions a year, I would do okay with the book sales. But I was thinking just earlier, because you raised the issue of income, is that if it weren't for my Patreon income, if I had to depend solely on my Writers Guild pension, my social security, I'd be below the poverty line. Uh, even, with, even with the novels that I'm selling, uh, even with the short stories I'm selling, the, the rate of inflation and the cost of living, I had to develop new sources of income. And there's a couple other things I'm working on too, which if I can get my income up even more, I can, you know, uh, then I can do more for the kids around here. So when I read something in the news where somebody says, uh, where, where some public figure says something very stupid about the cost of living or, or uh, whatever, it, it incenses me because I'm very much aware, I'm very much aware of the, uh, uh, what it is to be poor. I was poor when I was living alone before I started selling my books in the 70s. Mm. Uh, I was really scraping through. 
I lucked out. I got to work on Land of the Lost. I made a little money off animated Star Trek. Um, and then uh, my two Star Trek books paid off. So I was able to put, you know, to put down a, mar a mortgage on the house I've been living in for 44 years, 47 years. The thing is, you know, I've made and spent three fortunes and, and the last two were spent on Sean. And I don't regret it. It's taking care of Sean, you know, making sure that he, he gets to be a good person is far more important than having, um, you know, a new a new Prius every year. Although I wouldn't mind having a new Prius every year. So. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, they say money can't buy happiness, but it can buy food, clothing, shelter, you know, gas for the car, rent. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of writers are feeling the crunch about that. Writing has become a hobby. Uh, for a lot of people, because it it's no longer self-supporting. I mean, if you're, if you're somebody like you know Ursula K. Le Guin or or uh, where or Harlan Ellison, where everything you write is in demand, no problem. You you know you you're gonna have a steady income. But once those royalties disappear, once those residuals stop coming in, you're in trouble. Especially when you reach retirement age, and you know it's like. God, I wish I could retire. And you say, well, gee, what would you do if you retire? Oh, I'd write the novel I've always wanted to write. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any ideas of where, it, where it's all going or any ideas where it should go? Well, I, I will tell you, I, I think artists and writers and singers and et cetera, we are the custodians of the culture. You know, uh, we create the heritage, the, the conversation, the, the context since the invention of mass media, we have erased much of the heritage. I mean, we no longer care about the Greek myths that much. I mean, we were aware of them, but they don't dominate our culture. We don't care about the religious mythologies. We don't, it's all of that is fate. And, and what have we replaced it? We've raised it with Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, kids, you get a bunch of 15 year olds in a room and they will talk at length about the ins and outs and details and inconsistencies of MCU or Star Wars or whatever, especially Star Trek. Well, is this canon or not? Is it, I don't, <laughs> I don't care. Um, but because the mythologies of the past have been replaced by the mythologies that we're inventing now. And I think that we need to subsidize the arts to a much greater degree than we are currently doing. You know, you go to Europe, the artists are, are subsidized, you know, like there's 20% of the national budget is to the arts. And here it's like 3% of the national budget goes to arts. And this is why much of American culture is plastic. Every off-ramp looks like every other off-ramp. You know, everything is chain stores. Whereas, you know, what I loved about uh, visiting Italy, living in, in uh, Canada, uh, uh, living in Hong Kong, is that, yeah, the chains are there, but it's all mom and pop stores and every place is different. And, and there is a, there's actually a sense of culture, uh, a sense of neighborhoods. The only way you, experience, you could experience that in America was you had to get off the interstates. But now you get off the interstate, you drive through the small towns and the business district is all shuttered. And the only business there is Walmart. The real vitality of any nation's culture is entrepreneurship, you know, the people who create their own businesses and create their own individual place. We have a, a great family that uh, has their own sushi restaurant. They were right across the street from us for many years. They moved to another location, but they're, you know, I go there not just because they're wonderful people, but because they have their own flavors of food that are not duplicated at the at the local sushi restaurant anymore. It's like you, you would seek out, there's, it's no longer there. There's a restaurant called Scandia, which had Scandinavian uh, food. I miss that individual uniqueness. Uh, you know, going to Denny's is, is not a substitute for dining out. It's where you go because everybody else is closed at one in the morning. Um, but, you know, Denny's is not my idea of a place to go for an interesting meal, that individuality, what people can create for themselves is where the real passion is found. And my son has found a career for himself that he can be passionate about. My daughter-in-law, God, I love her so much. She is, she is the most talented artist and she hasn't been able to do any uh, artwork because she's got her hands full of Aiden. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I, I bought her a, uh, 
Wacom tablet, drawing tablet for Christmas because I want her to get back to her art. I want, I want her to have that creative outlet. And uh, as soon as she can put Aiden in the you know, in the playpen for a while, mm -hmm. and yeah. you know, or or it's or it's we're also here. You hold him for an hour. I'm gonna go paint. <laughs> it's okay. There is more of this interview, and we will present it at a later date. David Gerald's books can be found at Amazon.com. His most recent titles are Hella, published by Daw. It's available in paperback hardcover and as an ebook. The collection Adrift in the Sea of Souls is also available and it's published by Amazing Selects. The Dark Worlds podcast is presented by Rage Machine Books. Visit our website at darkworldsquarterly.gwthomas.org and browse our bookstore by clicking on the link that says Rage Machine Books or download free issues of Dark Worlds Quarterly magazine. Until next time, I'm M.D. Jackson. Rage Machine.